Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, I am joined by Alelia Bundles, who is an incredible historian and author. And she talks to us about her great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. And the story is really a profound one of resilience and intergenerational wisdom. And not to apologize for it, because I think people feel that, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be able to figure this out. I, I, I must be able to handle this if I'm really, you know, the leader that everybody thinks I am. Surely I will be able to not just help myself, but help them as well. You do need to be able to have some people for whom you do not have to be perfect. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply, listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions, and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences, as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. 
Your time to learn begins now. So I was on Netflix maybe three months ago, and I found this series called Self Made. And it was um, played by or starred Octavia Spencer. And it was an incredible story about Madam C.J. Walker, who within one lifetime, her lifetime, she was born on a plantation. Um, her siblings, her parents were formerly enslaved. Um, she was the first relative born free. And she went on in 51 years to become a millionaire. And this is pretty profound when you think that she was born in 1867 and she died in 1919, that she was a millionaire in the early 1900s, a woman and a black woman. It's pretty incredible. And I think she was the, actually the first um, millionaire in America, the first female millionaire. So whenever I watch something, I watch it through the somatic lens. I'm always looking for just little bits of wisdom, something to learn. And Madam C.J. Walker's life was such um, something for me to learn from. Because to be a black woman in the 1800s and to create your own business and to be an entrepreneur and to empower so many other women black woman in this case, and to become a millionaire. That's so bizarre from what history books have taught us in America about women and about black women, especially in the late 1800s. So I was really interested in how did she build the capacity to find a safety in herself to do things as bold as put her image on the front of her product brand so people could actually attune and relate to her? Um, how'd she find the safety to um, go out into towns and travel around the country and sell her products? You know, how did she build that capacity? And how did she not internalize what the world thought about people like her who looked like her? So I did some sleuthing and I found Alelia Bundles, her great great granddaughter, who is very alive and thriving, and wrote um, a, the biography on her, which some parts of the movie were pulled from. And um, I reached out to her for an interview. And she said yes. And we had a beautiful conversation. And what you're going to learn from the conversation is um, applicable to anyone listening. You do not have to be a black woman or a woman. Um, you just have to feel what it's like to live in a body where you don't believe you're able to be yourself. And what really uh, inspires me and kind of reinforms the work I do is when I hear these examples from Alelia about how her great-great-grandmother really did operate from having a safety inside of herself, having a sense of self she connected to. So no matter what was happening around her, what people said or how she was treated, she believed in herself as a beautiful person and as a powerful person. And that's how she moved through her life. So my, so I, I should also say I have a team, an amazing team, um, my assistant and operations manager, Marika Malaya, who will be on the show in 
couple months. And Camille Leek, who is our community manager and assistant in my course. And Camille's also a DEI. Um, I don't know what you call that. <laughs> Some people would say specialist, but I see her more as like a DEI coach and conversationalist because she has such an open heart with the way she works with people. They were both so excited about Miss um, Bundles coming on. So I invited them to come with me and meet her and listen to her and ask any questions. So they're joining me as well in this episode. You'll hear them toward the end. I'm very excited to share this episode with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lelia Bundles, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Glad, glad to be here with you. I, you know, I think what um, the piece we were, we were discussing before I hit recorded where I wanted to start was just your situation and how you position yourself in the world from this lineage. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, then we'll kind of take it from there. Sure. I'm Alelia Bundles, and I am Madam C.J. Walker's great-great-granddaughter and biographer, uh, who had a 30-year career as a journalist, which gave me the tools to be able to tell the story. What's it like coming from that lineage? You know, one, one of the things that's really important to me is that my mother intentionally made sure that it was not an overwhelming big deal, um, that it was something that I was able to discover and get comfortable with on my own terms. So when I was growing up, my mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. And I would sometimes go with her to her office and I could see my mom in the role of you know, being a businesswoman, interacting with members of the staff, with the ladies who worked in, who worked as stenographers and secretaries, and then visiting the ladies in the factory. And just, you know, at that point, not fully understanding, but but later realizing that my mother had a very positive relationship with the other people who worked there. And, but she had felt the pressure to go into the family business. She had majored in chemistry and business when she went to Howard University and people kind of imposed upon her their views of what they thought she should be. And she was really intentional about making sure that I was able to find my own passion and follow my own dreams, which happened to be writing. I can't help but, but see this parallel between like your mother not making it a big deal and America not making it a big deal. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I'm really curious about your take on that. Like what's like, what, just take me there. What's that about? Well, you know, and for entirely different reasons, exactly, uh, with exactly. my mother, it was, uh, you know, I don't want you to feel that you have to do something. I don't want you to be burdened with somebody else's identity. You need to develop your own identity. You need to find your own passion and, as it turns out, that passion led me back to being able to tell the story. That's very different from America erasing the stories of uh, African-Americans and women. So I uh, will be 70 years old this year. And when I went was in high school uh, at not just an predominantly white school, but an overwhelmingly white school where I got a really excellent education and I was co-editor of the newspaper and vice president of student council. So I was very involved, but my high school history textbooks certainly did not mention Madam Walker. It didn't mention any of the other members of my family, like a great, great, great grandfather who was in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, the two people who were in the 
United States colored troops or the business people or any of those kinds of things or the people who resisted slavery. So that was not taught in my history books. The only time um, African-Americans were mentioned in my history books was as slaves, not enslaved people, as we now say. And literally the textbook said they were contented and better off uh, because they were clothed and fed. So that was that old time school of teaching history, which we're now seeing coming back where people don't want to talk about the really horrible brutality of slavery. But that was what I learned. And fortunately for me, um, I was coming of age in college when Black studies and women's studies were really taking hold of the academy. And so all of this scholarship that's been done in the last 50 years that now tells the story um, is something that has made a huge difference about how these stories are told. But for me personally, my mother did not want me to be burdened with it, but I was able to find my way into telling the story when I was in graduate school at Columbia in journalism. And my advisor happened to be Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty. And she recognized my name, Alelia, with its two uppercase letters and its apostrophe. And when I was talking to her about my master's paper projects, they, I'm sure they were really cliched and boring. And she patiently waited. And at the end of the conversation, she said, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? And I said, yes, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write about. But that was the fall of 1975. There were very few books um, being published. Not that, not that they weren't being written. Somebody might have been writing them, but being published by or about African-American women. That was not part of the history text in America at the time. So it's interesting because what attracts me to your family and this story, I can't really say your family, but Madam C.J. Walker and you, is mm -hmm. what attracts me is it's not that she was a millionaire. It's not that she was an entrepreneur. Like that's all amazing for a woman in the 1900s, a black woman in the early 1900s. What amazes me again as a trauma therapist is how did she navigate her sense of self, her sense of personal power, her desire to innovate by putting her face on a container and saying, this is beauty. I mean, it was so radical for that time period. Like what in her that you are aware of gave her that sense of like resilience and not internalizing what was being said about people who looked like her? Right. Well, you know, and it there because her self story, her personal origin narrative was born in Delta, Louisiana, 1867, on the same plantation where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. First person in her family born free, orphaned at seven, married at 14. She said to get a home of her own to escape the abuse of a cruel brother in law, widowed at 20 with a child, moved to St. Louis where she was a washerwoman until she was 38. So that was the origin story that she told. Now, so I began to pull those threads that as I was doing research and I was able to fill in some blanks. You can never fill in all of those blanks of those first 38 years, but some key things that I learned about her. I mean, you we know that there are just some children who are resilient. So to the degree that she somehow came out of this horrible situation uh, and still had the gumption to fight and to say, I'm going to move, I'm going to leave this place, get on a steamboat and go to St. Louis where she had older brothers. She knew enough that she had to get out of that. 
But a couple of things that are little seeds that I think may have been planted, that, that her family minister was a shopkeeper and he was a, uh, an elected official. He was a, a state senator in Louisiana during Reconstruction. And where they lived was 90% Black because there needed to be so many people picking cotton. And that meant it translated into Black political power. But it also then uh, translated into the, a serious backlash from the Ku Klux Klan so that her family minister and her brothers were chased out of Louisiana after the 1876 uh, election. And that was part of a, one of the early migrations, the exodusters who moved north up the Mississippi River, many going to Kansas and Nebraska with some of those black settlements. But her brother stayed in St. Louis. And that was, I think she knew that they were there. That gave her this sense of there's, a, there's some other world beyond this world. When she got to St. Louis, her brothers had become barbers at a time when black men dominated the barbering trade. So that meant they had some leadership, you know, some entrepreneurial sense. And their barbershop was very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And for me, that's a key that it was the women of the AME church, which was known for being very progressive about um, advocating for African-Americans, reaching out to poor people like Sarah Breedlove. And I believe those women began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. But for me, that was really a critical part of how she began to see herself. See, that's important to me because... Um... So there's this word we use, which is like attune, attunement. And so with the nervous system, like one nervous system attunes to another nervous system. Mm -hmm. And one way um, uh, social constructs and systemic oppression and such uh, works against the individual and the collective is there's nothing to attune to that looks like you. There's nothing to attune to that you can relate to or feel safe with. You're attuning to things that are saying you're opposite and you're the one that deviates from the norms. So there must be something wrong with you. So when you talk, you know, as I'm watching the series and I'm reading about her, I'm, I'm thinking, what was it that, uh, that she was attuning to? Like, where was she attuning to say there is a sense of self, there is somewhere for me in this world? And that answers one of my questions right there. Does that make right. sense? Well, no, absolutely. And that, I mean, uh, among the many things that I could talk about with the series, one of the things that, that particularly annoyed me about the series is that the writers, uh, even though they had my book and even though I talked with them ad nauseum about this, they left out the part of the women who mentored her. And for me, that was absolutely critical that this is a story of empowerment, that she was a poor washerwoman but she had a good enough voice to be in the choir. So she was modeling herself after some of the more middle-class women. Jessie Batts Robinson, who was a school teacher, her, her daughter's school teacher, but also in a leadership role in the church and also in a leadership role in a national women's organization uh, called the Court of Calanthe. She, in many ways, was her early mentor. Later, she became the person who ran the beauty school in St. Louis for her. And then the National Association of Colored Women, who in the series are portrayed as women who want to be in the kitchen, but they were absolutely the opposite of that. They were women who had traveled internationally, had been educated at Oberlin and the Sorbonne in many, you know, in many instances. But those women had their national convention in St. Louis in 1904 during the World's Fair, 
when Sarah was still a washerwoman. She observed this power of women collectively working together. They had founded their organization in 1896 because they were excluded from the white women's suffrage organizations. So when she, in 1917, organized her agents into a national convention, she had used their example and their template. So she, as you say, she saw it. She saw the possibilities in what other people were doing. Now, if that's a long leap from washerwoman to millionaire, from washerwoman to creating an or, a national organization and empowering women to be economically independent. But she did see the possibilities. And that that's so, again, I, I love that you brought in that piece that was left out in the series, because I think um, we have this like post-colonial American concept, like you do everything yourself, like I'm going to pursue it. It's all about me. And there's this reality of like community is what empowers us. And so for her to be in this sense of not like the pioneer woman, you know, but actually this this young girl growing up with these really beautiful uh, role models of like middle class black women who were like scholars and wanted to create something for their life that they weren't able to even maybe 10, 15 years before. That that really speaks to where she was attuning and what was waking up in her. Well, you know, and just even the title, self-made. I one of my good friends, Tyrone McKinley Freeman, who's a professor at Indiana University School of Philanthropy and who's written a book about Madam Walker's philanthropy called Madam Walker's Gospel of Giving. Tyrone and some other scholars use the title, use the term mutually made because it really is about community working together, that this is very much a part of what she was doing. And so, but it, it is so ingrained in the self-made American you know, billionaire, millionaire, so that the scene in the movie where she says, you know, I want to be bigger than Ford and Carnegie and Rockefeller put together. And that this sort of fake scene where she goes to Rockefeller's lawn because he's the only one who will understand her. I mean, it was, that was ludicrous that, you know, that it was the leadership in the black community, the people who were creating organizations like the NACW, like the NAACP, um, like the National Negro Business League, um, the women's auxiliaries for the Baptist and the Methodist. Those were the people that she went to to uh, discuss the problem she was having, her attorney. She surrounded herself with people who uh, could lift her up and who could fill in some of the deficits that she had as a person who had not had a lot of formal education. So it just keeps reminding me of this term again, the somatic therapy term co-regulation. And I'm thinking of, I had a guest on last year who is a woman from the Middle East who grew up in a series of wars throughout her whole childhood. And her parents and her siblings, they her parents created this kind of like container around her and her siblings of normalcy. Even though there were bombs going off a block away, they would be like playing games in the bunker. Like they, they created this like safe place again for them to attune to. So even though there was all this horror around her and there were so many reasons why she should believe like there's no hope, she was so attuned and co-regulated with this like I, like a love mutual made, mutually made. She was she was mutually made to feel safe, right? And so again, when I'm thinking of your great great grandmother, 
I'm seeing this, this young woman just looking around and taking in all the examples that, oh, it's safe to be a Black woman and, and have power. And these people are empowering her with their own existence, really. And I just find that to be, I think one reason I personally am attracted to the Black American experience is because of these situations. The, to see how much a, a body and a spirit can overcome when everything stacked against you through these really beautiful moments of attunement and co-regulation. These people are really our teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, How does that affect you? Like on an emotional level, descending from a family, like a woman like that, like how does that show up in you? I wonder. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me that when, when, when I began to really discover who she was beyond that, she founded a hair care company, you know, because, and my mother went to work there every day. It was really my parents who, of course, were my role models and who were the people who were infusing me with values. I mean, Madam Walker's story is kind of icing on the cake for me, but, but my parents put a cocoon around us. I mean, they um, encouraged me to be a good student. That was really the center of my life. Both of my parents work. My, in addition to my mom being vice president of the Walker company, my dad was president of another black hair care company. He had worked for the Walker company when they first got married and he was just actually hired away. And so when I was growing up, that was the more successful, you know, financially successful uh, of the two. But I, um, you know, I was in a, a, a middle-class black suburb um, it was idyllic in many ways, but at the same time, of course, you, you know, you experience racism, you experience people who aren't in your corner, but for the most part, I was insulated. And I was thinking as I, you know, listening to some of the post commentary for, uh, Justice Jackson and you, the people who are just saying stupid things that, you know, are insane and racist. And my mother would just, somebody would say something to me. My mother would say, you know, they're the ones with the problem. And so that was the way that we learned to deal with it. That you do, you do the things that you love. You get good at the things that you love. Uh, and yes, there's always going to be somebody who's going to throw up some, you know, throw up a wall in your way, but you figure out how to navigate it. So again, another term that you're just reminding me of, that uh, we're or a concept and a practice that we're always teaching. Like we, we do courses and have a membership. So we have groups of students that come through. And one thing we teach is this practice of finding safety in yourself and not in the world, in yourself. And it's a big difference because when you are um, growing up in a subculture or a marginalized culture, uh, you don't necessarily find safety in the world very easily. However, when there's this practice of safety in yourself, safety in your community, safety in your church, like wherever that that co-regulating kind of community lies for you, there's this this place in you that this wisdom just shines through. And I think of uh, Diane Carroll said the same thing that her mom said to her, like, oh, that person that's yelling at you in the street, they have a problem in them and they're making it about you. And she said that that moment changed her life for the rest of her life. She never internalized any racism ever again. It's like, that takes some serious wisdom because right. there's this self-attunement. Like I'm not looking at what you think about me and believing it. I see you as the one with the issue because you're the stressed one and I'm staying in my body. I just wonder if you've ever personally practiced that or growing up in the family, people just, you know, that's the, that's the culture. Like I'm, I'm just curious how that lands for you. 
Well, you know, my my neighborhood was really a pretty amazing neighborhood. When, when we, the people that I grew up with, we talk about this, how we had no idea just what our parents were going through and the environment that they were creating for us. But literally, I mean, I grew up in Indianapolis, um, but the neighborhood where we lived from the time I was six on was a small black suburban neighborhood where all of the houses were built in between like 1957 and 1963. And it was maybe five square blocks. And the parents were school teachers, coaches, a few doctors, carpenters, plumbers, business people. Um, and, and so they, the, and the mothers had a, you know, a neighborhood association we could leave our bicycles out. I mean, it was really a pretty amazing place. And one of my one my mother worked full time. Many of the other mothers worked um, as school teachers, and so were off during the summer. But they made sure that we had swimming lessons, and you know that we you know learned how to make potholders. I mean, you know, it's that, it was that kind of thing where we really were in a bit of a cocoon. It's not that we didn't experience other things. Uh, and it's not that we didn't experience people being not nice to us, but we had, you know, these great role models of fathers who had been World War II and Korean War veterans. But the outside world that we didn't uh, process as children, those houses, our parents could not get loans from the commercial banks because of redlining and because of discrimination in the banking industry. And so they got loans for those houses from a black insurance company. So there was this sense of the community, you know, you just, everybody was an example of achievement and that was what was expected of you. Um, but we, you know, we just had to, you, you had to sort of suck it up. And, and it's, but it's interesting to me knowing that the, our parents created that world for us so that we would have confidence and so that we were able to do our own achievement. And then a lot of other doors started opening up as I was graduating from high school in 1970 and college in 1974, affirmative action. Um, women were suing the networks and journalism organizations. And so I was able to walk through that door where those doors opened up and a lot of social justice things, civil rights. But it is confounding to me that 50 years later, a lot, a lot of those doors are closing that the forces are trying to close it. And so I'm trying to figure out what the armor that I had, that part of what I feel in this stage of my life is that I need to download whatever I know to help give a next generation the armor, because you have to have the armor. Otherwise it will be too much. Well, I think of, you know, there's the, this two kind of opposite terms like intergenerational trauma, intergenerational wisdom. Mm -hmm. And one one intergenerational piece of wisdom that seems to have been passed down through your lineage and many others, but I'm talking to you, is this thing of like, we need to surround ourselves with safety of our own community and build from there. And it seems like that pattern kept getting passed down through your family. I mean, that that's gorgeous. And so when you talk about like when you talk about the armor, you know, again, I always hear my own my own language of really the sense of I just see people surrounding each other and lifting each other up and attuning to themselves to create that, that deep sense of empowerment. So I kind of wonder in your lifetime, how have you experienced being able to create that for other people? 
or your family? Well, I mean, I'm, I feel so fortunate that I some of my best friends are people that I've known since I was a little girl and have been able to keep those friendships, friendships that were developed in college. Those are still people with whom I'm close. And it's, you know, the, the circle of girlfriends is really important to me. I'm, I'm not a person who goes to church regularly, uh, though I know that that is often a key for many people. But fortunately, I have friends who pray for me, who pray for me. <laughs> um, but but it is making sure that you have the you know a close community, and you know, and I you know in my thirties, um, I spent a lot of time in therapy, you know, just sort of processing um, things that I didn't think were going right in my life, and part of what uh, part of the lesson for me in that process of therapy was realizing that the women in my family um, died early. That in, And Madam Walker, you know, died when she was 51. Um, uh, her daughter died when she was 46. My grandmother, May, actually was adopted by Alelia Walker. And there's a sort of, sort of long story of how her, the families knew each other even in St. Louis. And then her grandmother lived across the alley in Indianapolis from Madam Walker. Her father had died when she was nine. Her mother was raising eight children and her mother was a third generation widow with seven or eight children. So there was that sort of sense of loss. And then my grandmother died when my mother was a freshman in college. And my mother died when I was in graduate school and she was in her forties. Now I'm almost 70. So I, you know, I guess I've broken the cycle, broke the cycle. but, but that, um, you know, that sense of loss and the sense of abandonment that just comes from those early deaths was something that I had to process. And I, something that I had to figure out, you know, what did that mean? How did that inform the way I felt about myself and about my relationships with other people? How did you personally move through that? Like, what did you learn from that that helped you feel connected, feel safe, feel open to your own life like without being immobilized by the, the, the grief? Like, what did you use to get through that? Well, you know, thankfully, I had a really great therapist. But, you know, I didn't, I'm, I'm, I was in graduate school when my mom died. And actually, I had just really started doing this research on Madam Walker. And when my graduate school advisor suggested, you know, or insisted that I write about her. When I went back to Indianapolis for Christmas, my mom was in the hospital and had lung cancer, was terminal. But at 23, that, you know, that didn't, I really wasn't processing what that meant. Um, and one of the last conversations I had with my mother was I was telling her what I was writing about. And I said, I'm finding that, you know, Madam Walker's not perfect, that she's different. She's something other than just the myth. And she said to me, I said, you know, what do I do about that? And she said, tell the truth, baby. It's all right to tell the truth, which was an incredible gift because I think she had felt she had to protect things. And, you know, families have secrets, but fortunately I did not have that sense of, I have to keep a secret or I have to tell a certain story. But I just kind of kept moving through my life and saying, well, I have to put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, eventually that catches up with you. And so I had not really, you know, I grieved, I guess, but not really. And so I had to do that grieving, um, you know, a decade later. 
Yeah, I think it's um, whenever I think of healing, I always think it's to be with what is in you right now. And if there's a grief inside of you and you're distracting yourself from it, knowingly or unknowingly, it's it's going to wait for you. It's not just going to go somewhere. So that you had this moment where you kind of caught up to it and you realize I have to be with this. I always right. find that's well, what makes space well, for it. And I will just, I will say, so so that, so that what I didn't realize at 23, like I just think, God, I just should have gone home and been with my mother. But that wasn't the way our family was structured. Like you're supposed to keep doing what you what you're doing. You know, that's, you're not supposed to stop and, so that so that was like, okay, well, that would have done that differently. But I in some ways I was able to um revisit that and reframe that in, in 2019, my father and both of my brothers died within 18 weeks of each other. And each of the circumstances was quite different. Um, but my brother, who's who was three years younger than I, also had lung cancer, and he was in Indianapolis, and I was able to spend a lot of time with him. He, some good friends insisted that he move in with them. And I would go back every three weeks for his chemo. And then during the last week of his life, I was there and my dad had dementia. And we, so we never told him that my brother was sick because we knew he was, you know, couldn't quite process that. But I was able to, I think in some ways, be with my brother in the way I had not been able to be with my mother and to and with a great hospice nurse go through that process. So that sense of loss, that gave me, um, you know, sort of a able to process what that really means to to lose someone, but to also be present in that in that process. It's the presence that I find to be the real medicine. You know, like losing someone is is one thing, but the presence of I should say the presence of any possibly traumatic experience or overwhelming experience being present, that that connection to it, I just find it always to be so, um, just so transformative. And it, it's it's bringing my mind to your great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother again, because I'm just thinking how amazing it is that in 51 short years, like she completely transformed a generational trauma of coming from enslaved, enslaved, you know, lineage for a couple generations. And then in 51 years, being able to create the space for her descendants then. I mean, that's so phenomenal. And, you know, with intergenerational trauma, what's so profound about it is our ancestors passed down information of their traumatic events into our bodies, right? Without us even knowing it, like it's biologically proven. And the same is true with resilience. So something about, again, I keep saying 51 years just to kind of highlight how short of a time she shifted her her life. But that also had to come from a resilience in her that she also passed down. So when I hear all the loss that everyone in your lineage has gone through, yet there's this consistent like resilience. I mean, that's obviously in your DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, I I am I I do really come from a, a line of folks who just kind of put one foot in front of the other and who are really um, hard workers and achievers. And some of that manifests itself in different ways. With Madam Walker, it's you know created wealth, created a business, and in other ways, it's my dad's parents who were um, you know uneducated people from rural Kentucky who moved to Indiana, who spent their lives as laborers, but who worked very hard and who, um, you know, made sure that they set an example, a work ethic. So each of those 
uh, lessons, um, you know, have has been have been passed down to me. And, you know, again, to different effect, my mother's father's family, they my my grandfather went to college. He, he born in 1892. His father was valedictorian of his class at Lincoln University in the 1880s. His mother had gone to Oberlin. Um, but and he became a lawyer. But he was a you know the person who gave me the oral history, but he was not very good with money. He, <laughs> my father's father, on the other hand, who was a laborer for the Pennsylvania Railroad, had more money in the bank when he died. But I learned, you know, a variety of lessons from people. And I think part of the part of that resilience is that life is going to deal you some horrible blows and you can be, you can be affluent, you can be not affluent, but you have to figure out how you're going to show up in the world that, and that you need to do. I mean, this, and I think this is true from all dimensions, all branches of my family, that there is, that there is something that you should be doing for others. It, it is very much a part of what Madam Walker's message was, but it's also very much a part of the message of my parents and, and my other grandparents. You know, as you, right before you were saying that, I was just thinking back to how she put her image, you know, on the canister of the salve or the treatment. Right. And um, like when you're saying about being in service, like seemingly simple, like really radical and highly in service, because I'm assuming at that time, if you were a young black girl, you didn't see someone that looked like you on a beauty product. Like, can you speak to how that might have affected people? Well, you know, God, how bold was, was that bold. to do that? Because at the time, um, there were ads in the in the newspapers for white owned companies that were trying to appeal to black women and really were sort of exploiting this sense of not having straight European hair. And and Madam Walker was bold enough to put her own image on the products and to take out ads where she showed herself versus her before and after was short hair that where she was going bald and the after picture was long, full hair where the white companies would have pen and ink drawings and the before picture was a black woman with splotchy skin and hair that was sticking out. And the after picture was essentially a white Gibson girl, you know, which most white women couldn't, couldn't be either. But there was that sort of that dissonance there. And for her to say, I'm going to put my own image, that was just like the genius of marketing. And her competitor, the woman for whom she had sold products, Annie Malone, did not have her own image on her product. Um, and the products were essentially the same. They weren't, neither one of them created the formula originally. It had been around really for centuries because it was a medical pharmaceutical formula of an ointment like Vaseline with sulfur that healed scalp disease. But for her to say, to be a black woman who put her own image on the product, it, it's, it's, just, it's radical <laughs> to have done that. It really is. It's like when I think like whenever I go to a town and I see like like the rainbow LGBTQ flag or something, I suddenly feel like settled. You know, it just, it just like settles me because I see like, oh, some people like me are here. Right. And, then, and I feel like it's this it's the same thing. There's this radical thing of saying like, this is me. People who resonate with me know this is where they can find themselves. And so right. when I think of her putting her image on there. I'm like that. It's it's bold. It's empowering. And it's that thing we were talking about earlier where there's like an attunement, like people can attune to her. And 
what's again that's why i said that the business that's cool what interests me more is like the the resilience and the sense of self and these subtle somatic healing experiences from putting your your face on a canister right like that that is what's so profound to me because it's it it, it put a message out to say there's more than what we've been told is beautiful. There's more than what we've been told is here for us. There's more of us than what has been told. It's just this, this beautiful, um, this beautiful, like lighthouse, you know, just kind of like showing some people, oh, there, there's a way with people who look and feel like me. And that's really healing for bodies, you know, to see something that that resonates for you. Um, I have my own experience with that. And so I think it's really, it's, it's magical. Uh, and I, I think that's why I wanted to have you on here, because it's, it's such a powerful story of quote success, but the success for me is the human aspect, you know, like everything these generations went through and how people listening who have trauma, who feel like everything's stacked against them can kind of have this story to feel in their hearts of, wow, these are some of the little like formulas or medicines along the way that helped this woman come into a sense of herself and then like help so many people. Um, I just want to pause because I never have other people with me hosting. <laughs> they were both so excited that you were speaking to me. <laughs> I wanted to have them come with us. Um, so I just want to kind of like publicly for those of you listening, just say Camille Leek and Marika Malaya are here and they're part of my team. They've never been here together. You've heard Camille already. You'll hear Marika soon. But um, I wanted to give them an opportunity if they wanted to say what they're feeling, what's coming up, ask questions um, if, if they want to. No, I hope they will. Can I and can I just sort of make a little comment? Oh yeah. Um, about this sort of this sense of her on this product container, she truly understood the power of that of narrative. She had a picture taken of the cabin where she was born. She was on a trip, you know, after she'd become successful. But it's in that sense of telling Abraham Lincoln telling his story. Um, she knew that. When she, I think after a point, she was traveling around selling the products, but she realized, yes, women wanted some products for their hair, but what they really needed was some confidence, some education, some um, economic independence. And so that story of saying, this is where I started in this cabin as an orphan does not mean that I that you have to stay mired there that you can move on and that was really you know what she was selling to people not just the hair care products but this sense of what your life can be i'm really glad you said that part as well because um i've always said to people if your heart is open and you want to serve whether you're working at a corner store or you're a therapist like you get to it change lives so it's like her her hair care product was her calling card, right? But what that actually invited was a sense of self and like healing parts of you that you think were ugly and like feeling beautiful and and, and literally changing lives through that. So it's not it's not as shallow, is it, as beauty products? It's much deeper. No, no, listen, it's <laughs> it's open a jar, but yes, it it really is. It's like how can I not have to work? And it's one of them. One of her um, customers said, uh, an agent said. You have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. This was about, yes, I need a product, but really what I need is my life. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's beautifully put. Camille, I saw you unmuting. Oh yeah, go for it. I did. I was going to say, I, I absolutely love that in that um, 
I feel one of the things that really stands out for me about Madame Walker's legacy was not just that she became a millionaire, but she became a millionaire on her terms. Like, I feel like it's really easy for us, um, particularly if we experience any sort of of money or poverty trauma to to be told, like, this is the way you make money. And if you deviate from that, you won't you won't be successful. Um, So so sort of to Luisa's point, I really love the fact that she was successful, not just monetarily but on her terms. And I, I think that really, um, at least at least some wisdom that, that I take away of, around challenging my own preconceived notions of, of, as to how can I find success in the world? But that that is just uh, something that stood out to me about her legacy. Well, and Camille, along those lines, it's when she was making money, her attorney became very nervous when she started speaking up politically. And said, you know, you're going to be circumscribed and the government is going to come after you. And the government did come after her. She was spied upon uh, because she and Ida B. Wells were so outspoken about lynching. But she was like, you know, the courage to be able to stand up. And it's like, what are you going to do to me? This is where I started and this is where I've come. So there's nothing you can really do to me. I'm going and, and my money was made by the people for whom I am speaking. So I'm going to keep doing that. And that can be very hard to do uh, because somebody can circumscribe you. Somebody can come after you. I, yeah. I love, oh, no, please, go ahead, no, you, you go first. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I really um, appreciate that because particularly when you have a marginalized identity, um, we can be coached by those of our, of our own community of, well, this is the way you should show up. Make sure you don't cause waves or, uh, you know, then this success or this affluence or this sense of security is going to go away. But so to sort of have the safety and security to know that well, what can you do to me? You know, I, I started from the bottom. Now I'm here. Um, but to, to, to sort of know that and be willing to take that that risk um, or, or quote unquote risk, um, I, I think is is really beautiful. Um, so so yeah, I, I think thank you for sharing that. And it's what Louise said about sort of being that within yourself. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the world can be screaming at you. Um, you know, Katanji Jackson illustrated that for us like i am yes. here i am <laughs> yeah stayed, stayed in her coherence the whole time that's but right. no, absolutely um that's right so no, one I other to, I thing. Said, can oh, i no, say something what you said because yeah. i thought it was i i loved um i forgot <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll think about it while you ask your question yes interrupt me if it comes back up i was gonna say earlier in the conversation Loved, absolutely adored how you how you gave context about the um, mentorship in the community that that supported your great great grandmother. Because I think, at, at, particularly as a black woman, um, subscribing to the superwoman ideal um, can be very detrimental. And I know there's more and more conversation about that, giving giving ourselves grace and understanding that it really does take a village. But for so many of us, it is that idea, um, not just as Americans, but particularly as Black women, you got to be strong. You got to do it on your own. You got to keep up this, this front the entire time. But if we're really honest with, with ourselves, to your point, well, no, I'm relying on all these other women around me who, who give me um, emotional support, who give me guidance or being really yeah, I don't like doing that part of the business. Let me bring on some other people that can handle that. That is not my area of expertise. Um, so I really, really appreciate you um, giving context to that. And and I like the conversations that are starting to happen about normalizing that. I'm like, nope, we're not, we're not super women and we, we need help. We need support. Yeah, you got to, you have to have a posse. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and different people, you know, different friends bring, you know, different qualities and bring different kinds of support. I mean, you just, it, it is, you know, I have a, a book, I'm in a book club. That is a set of friends who um, bring a certain kind of intellectual and also, you know, a lot of wine drinking, but and then <laughs> other friends who are my former journalism colleagues, we share information all the time. We send each other articles. We commiserate. We look at our old industry, you know, and then just childhood friends. Uh, You know, it's exciting for me that I'm, that my, I don't have children of my own, but my, my friends are starting to have grandchildren and to be able to be a part of that community. So yes, you have to have the, I mean, to be healthy, you have to be able to give yourself some grace. So I have to say two things because that that again reminds me of in the somatic therapy world, so many people are trying to self-regulate. It's mm. like they see it as like that's the way. Like if I can self-regulate, I've I've beat the boss of every level and now I'm I'm the best. And I, I find it so interesting. Yes, self-regulation is awesome. It's a it's a skill that is great to learn and feel safe in your body. And um there's this reality that in this like interdependent, even in the natural world, like I'm looking at tree roots, you know, entangling with moss, there's just this nature of interdependence um, as a species and with other species and any life form really can't exist without another life form. And I think reframing this idea of independence into interdependence and how these co-regulated moments with your book club, with mentors, with friends, with therapists, how that builds our capacity to actually self-regulate and feel safe. And then when we don't, we can kind of go back and then get a little fill up our well with the people we love and feel safe with. I think it's an important point to remind people listening, because a lot of people trying to heal trauma are doing it alone. They're Mm -hmm. trying to do it by reading books by themselves or just sitting uh, in a room with just a therapist and they go home and they don't have a community to go home to. Not that that's their fault, but it's so important for them to know you're not doing anything wrong if you're trying to heal something in you all alone. When a lot of these things that, that have traumatized us are collective traumas, they're cultural traumas, they're big things outside of us that we've grown up and been bathed in. So I just wanted to kind of like add that. I thought it was important. Um, Yeah, go for it. No, I was just going to say, I mean, and I think that's why spiritual communities are so important for people and that, and it really does bring sustenance. And, you know, as I said, I'm not going to church every Sunday, but I totally understand the role and the value that that plays and this sort of this sense of you know i know that when i was going through this you know year of of my father and my brother being sick and then my other brother uh, ultimately dying as well that one of the first things i did when i realized that both my father and my brother were sick is that i called my therapist who i hadn't seen in 20 years and i said i know i'm getting ready to go through something that where i just need somebody to kind of hear me and to tell me that it's going to be okay or just to, you know, to, but I know that it's going to be difficult. And so I had that sense of, I need some help on this. And then I began during that process, I began to do chakras and, you know, I have all the bracelets and the, the meditation and, but I knew I needed to find something that was going to help me center myself and and that everybody and I, and I wouldn't be able to talk to somebody all the time but i do but i think there it is this process of learning 
you know, what you need, but sometimes it's beyond your ability to cope with it. And so then what do you do? That's right. You know, that's something we talk about a lot because um, people will say like, I'm beyond capacity to handle anything else. Yet the reality is there's much more to handle. Mm -hmm. And that's where the work I do comes in. Uh, One of the many things in the world is the, the practice of, can you be a friend to the parts of yourself that are overwhelmed, right? Instead of actually becoming the overwhelmed. Like, can Mm. I relate to the overwhelmed? Can I put a hand over it? Can I take some breaths into it? And it's profound, even though nothing in the outside world has changed, like the stress keeps coming, there's still this inner relationship we create with parts of ourselves. And it it allows us to move forward and handle more, more pain or more stress, rather than literally being consumed by it. And then you can't get out of it because you're so immobilized. So it it brings me back to what you were saying earlier about mutually made instead of self-made. I would love to see (laughs) you direct a movie about, you know, your great great grandmother called Mutually Made, because I think it's, uh, it's such a new concept for people to think they're allowed to ask for help. And just like Camille was saying about like the superwoman archetype, to just to see that there is a great power and vulnerability and being open to being humble enough to saying like, I don't know what to do next. I think that's really beautiful. Um, and, and, and not to apologize for it, because I think people feel that, yes. well, I'm, I'm supposed to be able to figure this out. I, I, I must be able to handle this if I'm really, you know, the leader that everybody thinks I am. Surely I will be able to not just help myself, but help them as well. But it is a, you do need to be able to have some people for whom you do not have to be perfect. Absolutely. And I think the, the what Camille said earlier, that I wanted to kind of like highlight was uh, people with poverty trauma will tend to think, like you said, Camille, like there's a rule now, like I have to take whatever I get. And so they don't believe they're allowed to show up as they want to in the world and actually be valued for it. They think I can only be valued for how someone decides to value me. And it's a common trauma response connected to poverty trauma, intergenerational trauma. And I love that, you know, Madam CJ Walker shows us how you can actually uncouple that idea. And she created a new reality, which is like by non-conforming, she became affluent. And that's something really nice for people here to witness as well. Like by literally deviating from what she was given around like, and not not fully because you're telling us there were these communities that actually were like, no, we can deviate. It's safe to look at us. So maybe I should say from her growing up and seeing like, oh, these people deviated and they're safe. Like they love themselves in a way they were told not to and they're doing well. It helped her uncouple this concept, right? Of I have to take whatever I can get or I'll never become anything. And I found it to be important. No, I'm sorry. No, I found it to be an important piece just for listeners to hear around with trauma, and especially with poverty trauma, we do believe that if we stand out, something bad is going to happen to us. And that's why in this case, your great-great-grandmother is like the perfect case study of saying, yes, that can happen, but in her case, it didn't. So sometimes you can follow what's authentic and and you, you will be rewarded. I'm just curious where you go with that. You know, I mean, I just one of the things I think that annoys me no end is when people will try to use her as an example of, well, you know, if Madam Walker could do it, you can do it. And that and that makes people feel, oh, it's not possible. I could never be that or, you know, and but what's not being explained is the intergenerational trauma and the intergenerational systemic obstacles that have been set up. 
So every now and then I, I'll be having a conversation with young people who talk about intergenerational wealth. And to say to them, you know, what we have to understand, it's not that you can't break the cycle. It's not that you can't achieve. It's not that you can't create wealth in your generation and be able to pass it on to the next generation, but understand that part of the reason uh, as African-Americans, you don't have some of the intergenerational wealth that some of your peers have is that your parents and your grandparents weren't there. They bought houses in neighborhoods that were redlined. And so they have no equity in their homes or their homes were destroyed by highways that where the neighborhoods were condemned because there was disinvestment or your school loans are so high and the interest is so high. So don't beat yourself up, but begin to figure out ways that you can understand what happened and then, and then figure out the next steps. But it is this, there is that sense of, um, you know, I, there are people who will want to say, well, you know, why can't you do it if Madam Walker did it? But it's, that's, it's just not, you have to understand the context of what was going on, what she was trying to create. And that's why I love looking at things somatically, because I don't, I don't believe in saying this. I say this all the time with people that take our course. I'm, I'm like, you can't look at how I healed my trauma or how someone helped me or how Camila Marika got to where they got to and compare yourself. Our roads are going to be different, but these, these techniques, these things that we can learn, that we can apply. So instead of saying like, well, why aren't you a, a millionaire? What's wrong with you? Like if Madam Walker, it's more like, well, what Madam Walker is teaching us is not how to be a millionaire. She's teaching, for me, she's teaching me how to find safety in yourself and how to attune to places that lift you up. And from doing that, I mean, only, only good can come out of it. Even when, if something horrible happens to you, I'd rather have something horrible happen to me from a place of like self-love and empowerment than feeling completely um, disconnected from myself, right? Because of the, the situation I'm, I'm born in. So right. th that's what her story really means to me. It's not about success, like Camille was saying. Financial success is like, again, the calling card, just like her ointment was. <laughs> but it's like, it's the deeper message is like, no, you empower yourself through being uplifted by people around you that you can feel safe with. Like, that's the message. Um, I, I just want to check with Marika. She's being quiet. I, know, I don't know if she wants to say anything or not. I just love this. I think it's great. I was wondering also as a writer, like what you're working on, if you're working on anything. Sure. Um, I am trying to finish the last editing, the last seven chapters of my biography on Madam Walker's daughter, Alelia Walker. I've been working on it for an embarrassingly long time, but I'm almost there. And I'm particularly eager for this story to be out in the world in the same way that I had to, you know, burst a lot of myths about Madam Walker I'm doing the same thing with with Alelia Walker. And she was nothing like the character in Self-Made. It was like the opposite of who she was. But to be able to tell her story that she, you know, first the daughter of Madam Walker, which can be, you know, she had a lot of privilege, but also a lot of pressure. Um, and you can never live up to somebody who's larger than life. And I think that was a challenge for her. But in finding her own comfort level and finding her own identity, she really did. She loved music and she loved culture and became a, a patron of the arts. And she gave some of the most fabulous parties of the 1920s. And so I want to I want her to be able to uh, shine and be her own person and, and come out from the shadows a bit. Ashley, one more 
Another question. Uh, uh, Ms. Bundles, about your own journey with being a historian, particularly a historian of, of your family, um, it really ap it appears like you approach it with a sense of curiosity, not judgment. Like I loved how you were describing, mm, mom, I found some things out about Madam that might not be so good. Um, where did that come from in you? And, and I ask because so many people are going on a generational healing journey and they find they don't have capacity for the quote unquote bad things in their lineage or in some of their ancestors. How can you describe your journey, how you got to that approach? You know, I think being a journalist, I think having that training as a journalist made me be able to sometimes look at things from a 40,000 foot view uh, and then also to, um, you know, to process it and to just think what well, this is, every family has the good, the bad and the ugly. And I don't, you know, you don't have to carry the shame of anybody else's decisions. You just, you, you're, you're responsible for yourself. And I'm not, I don't feel like I have to hide anything. I think I actually am also freed to do this because of what my mother said to me. But also when I was telling these stories, my brothers were supportive of what I was doing. They, I didn't feel like somebody else was saying, oh, my God, you can't tell you know, that story. But I, I think it's ultimately what my mother said to me about being able to tell the truth. And it's my training as a journalist. But I but I do um, agree that there are stories, there are family stories that do make people uncomfortable. This 1950 census that's just come out. I'm sort of relieved that I was born two years later, so I'm not in it. But but people are discovering a lot of things. And with some of the DNA testing, people are discovering that, you know, they're people who they thought were their fathers or their, you know, aren't their fathers. And that those kinds of conversations can be, you know, very painful on many, many levels. And so I I do think that it is um you know, it's hard, but there are one I'm working with uh, two young men who are doing we're doing something together for the National Archives on genealogy. And one of them said he's in, you know, it's an FPE group. And I'm like, what is that? But it's something like fathers who it's, essentially it's a group. It's groups of people who have discovered that their fathers who they thought were their biological fathers aren't. But people are finding community to process some of these really difficult traumas. I love that question, Camille, because I like as she was talking to Marika about the biography of Alilia, I think it, it's like you're doing the ancestral work. Like, you know, we 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 do a lot of this in our membership with people, um, just like Camille was saying, especially as Americans. Um, regardless of what side of, of the, the spectrum of race you fall on, it's like the culture is what gets lost when we become a race. So we lose where we come from because we're all immigrants here in different ways, some by force, some by choice. But the the current like collective cultural traumas, we don't know where we're from or what we were before we became white or before we became black. And so as we watch people go down that incredible, sometimes rabbit hole, sometimes like beautiful journey, of finding uh, their, their roots, like their ancestry, then they get to honor their ancestors in a way that they were forgotten. And so when I think about what the work you're doing with your great-great-grandmother and now what your great-grandmother, is that right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, it, that's really beautiful ancestor work because you get to learn about parts of yourself, your own family, them, and you get to bring that into the world. 
So we get to be introduced to them, you know, posthumously. That's that's very well, magical. Yes, I mean, and there's there there's so there's you know more trauma. I mean, there's probably I don't know seven or eight divorces between <laughs> between Alilia Walker, Madam Walker, and my grandmother. And so, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for each of those women and how they, you know, carry that to the next generation? And for my mother, you know, whose parents were married, divorced, and remarried. Um, and her father, who was married a couple more times. But for her, it was really important to create a safe family, to create a family where there was stability because of what she'd experienced. I never had long conversations with her about that. But it is, it's been, you know, revealing for me to examine what the ancestors went through and to see what these these women's stories. I'm fortunate that I have letters and I can find some records, but you it I think it does. If you know who you are, and that's that's why it is so important that we know American history and our family history, because it does reveal to us who we are and the strength that we had, because otherwise you just may be walking around in a circle and not really understanding. You know, there are people who paved the way for you, who made sacrifices for you, but also who want to celebrate who you are, those those ancestors who came before you. I had lunch with a woman yesterday that said, when you don't know where you're from, it disorients you. And then you're really kind of like, uh, what was it? Kind of desperate to cling to an identity. And I think of what you're saying. And it's like, when you have an idea of your roots, and you have an idea of the, the power and the strength, like the beautiful gifts, of course, along with the pain, but those gifts of resilience that come from your ancestors, it really roots you into yourself. And I, I find that to be just like that self-safety, this place inside of you that no one no one can touch if you have that practice. Well, and um, that's why it's so dangerous with what's happening in Florida and Texas with trying to erase identity, trying to keep people from learning about themselves and learning about who they are and who other people are around them. That shutting that down is just detrimental. Well, I'm realizing we are over time, which is very easy to do with you, obviously. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. And I want to thank Camille and Marika for joining me and being here and just your presence and great questions. Um, just so happy to have gotten to meet you and for you to share some of your wisdom with us. Thank you for your time. Well, I thank you so much for reaching out. And um, I'm really glad we had this conversation. It, it was a different kind of conversation than I usually have. And I welcome that. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My question for you is, where do you feel the episode? Take a breath and just notice. What's your body doing right now? Sit with it. Let it speak to you. And let whatever comes up, come up. And your only job is to listen. For all the wisdom you need is right inside of you. To learn more about my work, you can visit holisticlifenavigation.com and sign up for my mailing list. You'll receive a weekly newsletter with specific monthly topics, free resources, and upcoming events. You can also follow me on Instagram. If you like my podcast, please leave a review and share. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. 
But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.